Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Sisodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Good to see you again. Good to see you. You know, it's amazing. Our last two episodes, I think, are actually um, some of the most significant ones we've recorded. Last week, we recorded about evolutionary biology, the science underneath conscious capitalism. This week, we're going to be able to frame the larger problem that this earth faces and the incredible challenge we have in trying to make real progress um, on solving some of the world's biggest problems. And for that, we have Katan Patal with us. And Katan is the um, chair and advisory council member for the Force for Good. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Um, he's also the CEO and founder of Great Pacific Capital. He was formerly at Goldman Sachs. And there he was the head of the strategic group. And while there, wrote a book, a master strategist, and formerly was a partner at KPMG. Now, I want to say a little bit of something about Force for Good from their latest report, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, they described the Force for Good seeks to mobilize the deployment of capital as a force for good in the world at a time of profound and multidimensional change in the world. Now, there's a pretty big purpose statement. And for that, we have a pretty big character. And man, Ketan, welcome to our show. <laughs> oh, thank you. Very kind. Timothy, great, great to see you. And Raj, good, great to see you too again. Well, I want to maybe begin with your description of a little bit more about the force for good. Say a little bit more about what the organization is, how it was founded, and what it's trying to do in the world. Sure. Um, look, a, a pleasure to talk about that. This is this is a real passion for for me and those involved. So it was founded um, after an event hosted at the at the UN uh, in, at the headquarters in New York, uh, where a smallish group were asked to come. Raj was there actually. A smallish group were asked to come together. Uh, co-hosted really by the United Nations and organized, facilitated as a co-host really by a group called Future Capital. Um, we were asked to help think about the future of capitalism. A very big topic, of course, and uh, profound for our times, of course, too. So that was the idea. Um, for two days, we, we got to know the topic well, each other well, and generated five big ideas. And somewhere in 2020, um, the organizers... Uh, the sponsors really were in touch to say this big idea of uh, of capital and the mobilizers of capital, the managers of capital, the big institutions. Um, do you think we could do more with that big idea? And um, we started to explore it. And I ended up thinking you really could. You could look at the 100 biggest institutions in the world 
um, and find out what they're doing to mobilize their money and under what circumstances they allocate it to sustainability and to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And that led to us doing a very deep study, and we're in our third year now, to see the sources of money, how it gets mobilized, what it gets mobilized to, how much of it will end up at the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and how we make that number much bigger. And so that's that's a brief history of how we got here. Mm. I love it. And this week, you're releasing your third annual report, which um, we've had a chance to to look at and review. And you begin almost by saying 2022 has shaken the optimism of the world. And in essence, we've now started to put security and sustainability on the agenda, but almost as competing priorities. Maybe begin there with the 2022 different stage how has that shifted your thinking from 2021 to 2022 yeah it's it's a it's a deep and troubling one in the sense that 2021 um i was at cop 26 and you had a, a, a powerful force the youth challenging the leaders of the world to do more and when they didn't do as much as they expected saying that's just not good enough and that's absolutely right. And that pressure, though, led to a level of optimism among, amongst world leaders, uh, and including all types of businesses that actually new ground had been broken. Not enough, but optimism that this new ground had been broken on things such as you know, use of coal, deforestation, uh, methane, and so on. And so it looked like a big leap had been made and it set the, the foundation for even bigger leaps. The global, the global recovery was happening. The pandemic looked like something that, you know, while not finished, was uh, was a bit more contained and manageable. And it looked like you could move on to a growth scenario for the world out of something that felt much like austerity and and locking down the system. And um, we arrive in 2022, and here we are. You know, we have a war in Europe, of course. We have food and energy crises. The global supply chain is stressed and any of those links which are deep into China are even more stressed. China continues in lockdown. Um, we see poverty hitting the world in very big numbers. And if I, if I lay out some of those for you, you know, you'll see exactly what I mean. You know, we have 100 million people in extreme poverty since 2019, since the pandemic began. So this is 100 million more people. We have something like over 200 million people with food security issues. Uh, and children whose uh, reading skills proficiencies have fallen below the minimum standards set by the UN and others. And something like 270 million people are, are classified as migrants. And the expectation is because of climate change and because of lots of income insecurity and economic strife and so on, that number will grow to be a billion people. So and this is a very tough scenario to, to look at, taking a, a midpoint view of where we are in 2022. Yeah, and it's profound because just this last week, we've had this incredible tragedy unfold in Pakistan, where a third yes. of the country is underwater yes. and really hitting at the the most vulnerable people in the world who live, you know, the, the post, most affected are those that are living on bare sustenance, living yes. in mud huts, and they're suffering. They're the least contributors to the problem in terms of global climate change, but the most 
in terms of the people at the cutting edge of the suffering. And it really, 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 you know, to me stands out as an outstanding example of the injustices that we're facing right now um, as we try to battle this. Timothy, I'll add to that and say, I, I think 30 million people and it's climbing in Pakistan that are in that situation. You know, that's like, um, you know, half the population of the UK. You know, this is a this is a, a tragedy that has befallen them, which is happening in different guises now in many parts of the world. And I think we're going to get to see this sort of injustice um, hit lots of people around the world in many ways as the crises continue. Uh, the security and sustainability, therefore, challenge, and we laid out very deeply in the report, is um, what do you spend your money on? Do you spend it on security because you're now concerned that with, a, with the war in Europe? that this could expand somehow and you're ill-prepared. And if something like this happens again, you want to be better prepared. And nation states will spend huge amounts of money. And we I'll work through the numbers later as appropriate. Um, so do you spend it there or do you spend it on sustainable development uh, and in, in countries that might not necessarily be your neighbors? And so this is, this is why there is a pull between sustainability and security right now. Yeah, and Ketar, I see some disturbing short-term trends Hopefully they're short term, you know, but there's in the U.S. especially a large backlash against ESG, uh, language of any kind. A bunch of states have passed laws now that prevent their pensions and others from being invested with any kind of ESG criteria. Like so BlackRock and others, the big three really, Vanguard State Street, are all in a way, you know, they're being banned by certain states. Uh, because they are talking about a transition to a sustainable future and so forth. So it's just like, you know, we are whistling our way to the graveyard, you know, and it's uh, uh, this. And at the same time, I just saw a note from Paul Pullman that the uh, he was at the One Young World Summit in Manchester. Did you know about this? I, I, he just wrote about it. But a huge gathering of young people from all over the world and um, inspiring and this spiriting at the same time, you know. So 75% of young people are afraid of the future. And, and about half of them do not intend to have children. You know, and, uh, and the majority of them feel betrayed by what has happened in the world. And so there's this, all this deep angst. And at the same time, there's optimism and, and a drive to do something, you know. So I, I really think, I use the phrase uh, from Dickens, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. You know, with, we have the opportunity to do something about it. And at the same time, we are facing these pressures to not advance in this direction, you know. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot lot going on. And the sense of urgency that some of us feel is greater and others are completely backing in the other direction. Raj, could I, could I add, let me add some thoughts there if you don't mind. So yeah, here's, here's what I see as, um, as a reason for some of this. So um, the UN Sustainable Development Goals uh, as we calculate it, need something like $175 trillion. That's, um, that's a huge amount of money. We have recalculated the previous estimates from the OECD and the 2015 estimates. And, you know, it's, it's, it's timely to recalculate because since the original 2015 estimates, we've had a pandemic and you know, we we have, we now have economic strife. We have inflation soaring. We have supply chains broken, and we have growth declining uh, substantially from last year's estimates. So, as you recalculate, last year's estimate was something much smaller than this. This is twenty five percent up. 
the shortfall in, in the funding of the UN Sustainable Goals uh, is 35% up, we think, from last year, uh, up to 135 million US dollars. Now, uh, trillion or million? Trillion. Trillion, sorry, 135 million. That's such a large amount. Now, um, where would that money come from? And why is there such a fear that ESG and the funding of sustainability is a threat? And why is this happening in the, in the States? And I think as we examine that, we don't try and avoid that in the report because this is a very important consideration. As we examine it, what we find is even within rich countries, there are people who are dependent on the old infrastructure of the industrial age of the fossil fuels, of the big industry. And although you know, we recognize that something you know, like two thirds of the largest corporations have, have not really embraced the SDGs, um, don't really have ESG standards, uh, are not really pushing the boundary of, uh, of taking the world to a different future. Um, if you're employed in one of those businesses that is dependent on the past sources of fuel, what is your transition plan? And where is your government giving you a transition plan as they promote ESG sustainability? Where are the financiers as they promote this, giving you any surety that you have a future? And I think this is a challenge that the SDGs are universally adopted. It is a great mission. And that great mission will give us the security and stability of a much more level playing field from which to build the future. And so we have to do it. And if we don't, there'll be enormous insecurity. But as we transition energies and we transition industries, what are we going to do to make the landing you know, soft uh, for, for those that will suffer? And so it needs a, a multi-stakeholder approach, we believe, to managing this transition and this change. And it can't be we do one than the other. You know, It has to be multi-track. We have to keep transitioning, keep satisfying people who will be out of jobs as to what their future is. And this is a this is therefore much more complex task than ones a government can do alone, or a financier can do alone, or a corporation can do alone, or even individuals. So, you know, I I, I understand while still wanting us to make this transition. Yeah, in the report, you do a good job of sort of saying, first of all, the multi-dimensional plan we need isn't very well formulated, and then secondly, there's really no major global stakeholder alignment on that plan. And therefore, no surprise, the execution plan is, is not where you'd want it to be. And I'm, I'm curious, I mean, I'll, we'll get into the role of conscious business in a moment, but right now at the global system level, we know this is coming. Our, the, the, the beauty of being humans and being able to have all of these tools that we have is that we can look into the future and see the train coming down the tracks. Now, that's the good news and the bad news, but the ability of our systems to adapt and change, um, we've never, ever had the level of consciousness nor the level of urgency to try to do that. And I'm curious, more than curious, I'm fascinated to hear your take on how we're going to move the system to that level where there's at least a multidimensional plan. So, so you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tightly packed question, as, as you know, and multi-layered. So the, the first part of your question, why, why is this moment in time so important? And what the magnitude of change we're facing, why does it seem so big? I think it's because we have the concurrence of 
very big trends all coinciding right now. So we, we have the world going from at the beginning of the century about six and a six and six point two billion people or so. 2050, we expect nearly 10 billion. I mean, you take all of human history and we get to just about six billion people. And then we're going to add another four billion people in 50 years. And already we're going to strain everything we've created. How will we even cope industrially, you know, build enough roads, schools, create enough jobs, you know, feed enough people, and so on? And so, you know, that's one big thing happening, which we're in a transition of right now. The, the, the second really interesting big thing, I think, is that uh, we're probably in a transition of global power structures. So we, we shifted from two great powers fighting each other uh, in conflict to one great power emerging in the United States as the great power. And, you know, with the U.S. emerging as the great power, it seemed like a lot of people said it was the end of history. because you know, It really seemed like democracy, capitalism, free trade had won out. And that was the model. And since then, we've seen a reversal of those themes, not just um, in democracies, but, you know, autocracies, of course, embracing that idea. But democracies are going back. So we have this, this shift, this big shift happening right now, where there's a transition of power. It's likely that the four great powers between now and 2050 will be recognized as the US, the EU, China, and it will take some time, but given its scale, India. So these are the four great powers of 2050. Between them, they have something like 70% of the world's trade, GDP, you know, 60 or plus percent of, of the world's population or so, you know, 50 to 60% of that. Um, you know, military spend, you, you name it, it's almost somewhere between 40 and 70% of everything between these four great power blocks. So we are in the midst of this power transition, which leads to rivalry and conflict and risk. And then, you know, as if that wasn't enough, you know, on the positive side also, every human being on the planet will be interconnected by 2050. In fact, probably by 2040, if not before. So never before we have we had an opportunity where we're all so interconnected that we have a chance to actually raise all of consciousness. You know, human consciousness can be raised and the level of speed at which we can communicate and do that is far greater than it's ever been. And then finally, I'd say, we have, we have a transition of eras. We have a transition from the industrial age to the digital information age. And that means just like we would have had from agriculture to industrial, there's new winners and new losers. And the industrial age, which has run the world uh, for over 200 years or so, is, is about to cede its power to the companies that are digital information-based. And so, so, are, so are the politicians that supported that industrial age. And people will lose their jobs and have to find others. And so we're in this profound transition. And this is why it's so complex. Um, and, and so I think that explains the first part of your question, I think, really. And it touches on the second. I've spoken too long, and I know Raj wants to say something. So I'm going to pause before, before I, I even try to address the second half. Yes. Uh, so um, you have the figure in here of $175 trillion. Uh, that is the cost of the uh, Sustainable Development Goals. I just want to understand uh, what that number means. So we've got those 17 goals. Spending these resources will allow us to fix those once and for all, or is there an ongoing element? I mean, we obviously have to continue investing aligned with those priorities, right? So what does that number exactly mean, that if we spend it, then we would have achieved the elimination of poverty, et cetera, or we would have created systems that would then enable that to ongoing 
to continue in an ongoing way. So 175 trillion, and the original numbers began at around 40 trillion, and then kept increasing, or recent numbers have been 40 trillion and kept increasing. And our last estimate was, um, was something close to uh, 140 trillion or so, and this has grown. So the 175 trillion should address all 17 SDGs, and it should address them in a manner that is systemic, not a one-off, we fed everybody this year, and therefore poverty, therefore hunger is gone. It should, it should be a systemic solution to hunger, a systemic solution to poverty, uh, a systemic solution to, edu- to mass education for children and others, and so on. So these are systemic solutions. Now, I would say even if we achieve that, the system, and this is, the, this is Tim, Timothy's important point, you know, we're pointing at the system itself changing. So whatever we solved would give us a, a playing field that was more level from which the system would have to continue to evolve and change and adapt. And so if you took a country out of poverty once, let's say, and all its people were out of poverty and you'd made a systemic change, they would have as a country to have to continue to invest themselves. Now they have people who are out of hunger, are potentially employed, you know, are, are productive uh, at generating economic wealth. They have to continue to invest themselves to keep up with the changes in the world because these changes are, are so big. And so you, you, you are looking at systemic change once for all, I would say that, as nothing is in life, I guess. You know. Now, to put that number into perspective, as you say that there's 450 trillion in liquid assets in the world, invested assets, and global GDP is around 100 trillion. Um, and so if you think about it like getting a mortgage item and compared to your annual income, your mortgage will be considerably higher. It pays off or you pay it off over time. And so one of the points that you make here, which is, I think, critical, is that, um, uh, and I, I don't know if this number is, is, uh, is accurate, but you say 99% of the world's capital is invested for profit, right? Uh, implying that it's not invested for purpose. Now, as, as, of course, our movement talks about profit and purpose actually aligned together, if you do it right. Significantly, in fact, you can potentially increase profits beyond what you might have otherwise. But that seems to be the nub of it, right? That if we can direct that capital away from just a pure profit lens, which is what's happening in the US right now, all these states are saying you cannot look at anything other than returns, right? You can't look at societal impact, environmental impact, the future consequences, et cetera. Uh, But if we are able to align uh, that capital with these goals, right? So it becomes purpose and profit at the same time, uh, then uh, then it starts to look manageable. Raj, you're absolutely right. And this is where I think your question just now, your point just now, Timothy's come together. So I, there is a misunderstanding, I think, um, uh, generally in the world about the money of the world and where it should be used and what it should be doing, right? And so um, people will say, if, if financial institutions have... Um, 80% of the world's money. Why aren't they just spending it and solving the problems then? You know, it must be because they don't want to. And I, I, I would say it's worth reading this part of the report that says, let's break down what that money is and what it's getting used for. And then what do you want them to do? And so uh, it goes like this. There's $450 trillion of capital in the world as a stock. We renew that stock by trading every year we consume, we make, and so on. So the GDP is another 100 trillion, nearly. So let's put that to one side. Both are record numbers, by the way. Never in human history have we been this far 
and even in difficult times managed to raise that bar. So $450 trillion. Over 60% of that is owned by individuals and 40, just under 40% predominantly by governments. That money then enters the financial system and something close to 90% of it is managed by financial institutions. Um, but it's managed, it's not owned by them. So what, what that really means is you want the financial institution to manage it to your mandate. And your mandate might be, make sure it's safe. You know, Make sure you give me a return if I put in a deposit account. If I put in a pension account, make sure my pension is secure. And that when I retire in 10 years, 20, 30, 40, whatever it is, that the pension is worth something, right? And you're not to risk it. You're not to do it for charity. You, you've, got to, you've got to do it well for that, right? And it's to keep the lights on, right? And, and these, these businesses who take that money have to deliver a return. Now, here's, here's the good news, the great news, I think, is we, we looked at 120 financial institutions. We took all the public ones, which are the vast majority of that, your financial institutions, and we said, over five, a five-year period, let us analyze who does the most in terms of what we define as being a force for good, which means they do ESG, sustainability, and look after stakeholder interests. And then, uh, and then grade them, put them into quartiles in terms of who does the most and all the way down to who does almost nothing. And so we, we, we do that analysis. We have 450 data items that we measure against. So the quantitative analysis is very decent across 100 or so institutions that are public. Then we have a qualitative engagement with 30 of them across asset management, banking, and insurance that are, that are the some of the largest. And we, we pick them largest across regions. So we have you know, businesses from South Africa, businesses from India, businesses from Europe and, and the Americas and so on. And we get a good feel for why they do what they do. And Raj, to pick that point up, it's, it's not that they don't have purpose, but profit is a big motive and there can be other motives too. It can be purpose, it could be values led, you know, it, it, it could be many things, but certainly the profit motive was, was important for that number that we put out. So, uh, so here we are now with this, this set of people and we, and we ha understand how they fit in terms of effort. Then we look at their returns over a five-year period. And what we find is there is a very strong correlation. We're not claiming cause and effect, of course, because it's very difficult to pin down. But there is a very strong correlation between those that do the most and their five-year shareholder returns. Measured against the MSCI, the index, if you like, of the industry, of the largest in the industry, the, the top quartile outperforms the MSCI by 6x. So a 36% return versus a 5% return over a five-year period. I mean, that is so significant. We could be out by, you know, an enormous factor, by, you know, twice, twice as wrong, right? And it still, it still outperforms those that don't do much. The rationale I find is the following. If you are an organization that chooses to do something really difficult, and there's a part of the report where we describe how we break new ground, how these institutions are breaking new ground. They're breaking new ground by addressing the S of the social issue often. You know, they will look at minority communities and figure out how they help them get employed. They'll look at those that are part of the mainstream community of their country, but don't have decent employment. Um, and they will figure out how to address that issue. These are issues you might have expected the government to do in the old days, but these businesses are looking at this and saying, these are profitable customers. If, because we have the technology now, it's actually lower cost. And we can serve these customers, but there's a systemic issue. They're not educated, they're not trained, you know, they don't have good credit worthiness, but that's, that shouldn't be a problem. How do we solve for that? 
And let's say one of those banks puts in a commitment of $10 billion to solve that. That's a big thing. And if they do that, imagine the learning of that institution versus someone who just said, my job is to process mortgage applications from people who are creditworthy. I'm going to figure to make them creditworthy. I'll generate employment, I'll regenerate the city, I'll work with my partners, I'll lower the cost of transactions, and I'll make them customers. Now, this, this organization that took all that risk with all that innovation, that is going to end up as a superior organization in terms of its culture, its way of doing business, its values, but it's innovation. And so that's the future. And what we do in the report is give lots of examples of that and put that, put that together to say, there's an industrial model of finance, which, we, which has arrived at very, very risk-managed ways of processing bits of paper. And then there is another model, which is driven by this understanding that the world is changing and inclusion matters and it's profitable to do so. And those are very different organizations. We've described the characteristics. So I, I, despite the report being so hard hitting with the numbers, I'm actually enormously optimistic. And the, the stakeholder change needs to happen because if you want financial institutions to, to take more risk with the, the money they manage, then we as an individual need to say, I want you to I allow you to do so. Take more risk with my money. And governments need to say, yes, you're regulated as a financial institution to follow certain requirements. And we've understood that when you take this risk, it will change and the regulation will follow now to do so. And the shareholders need to be able to say, I understand this transition of the industry and I'm willing to understand that there might be a period where it makes less, but ultimately I know I'll make more. And so I want these organizations to go through this transition because we're all gonna make more and we're gonna make the world more secure. But you see, it can't be a financial institution making that decision on their own because they don't have the mandate to do so. They can do much more, of course, but they don't have the mandate to do so because you and I as depositors, pensioners, you know, ultimately want them to be safe for our pensions. So but we have to mandate them to push that. Well, you know, it, it connects to the, the challenge of conscious capitalism. You know, I want to connect conscious capitalism and innovation because, you know, at least in my experience, um, you know, if you ask somebody, are you ready to innovate? Is your organization ready to innovate? I ask just a couple of quick questions. You know, what's the level of trust in your organization and what's the level of engagement? And guess what? If you have low trust and low engagement business environment, try and innovate and have your own employees take risks in those kind of challenges. So in the conscious capitalism framework, you know, the idea of conscious leadership and a conscious culture enable a higher degree of trust and a higher degree of engagement. And when you align that with a sense of purpose and that the work is meaningful, and you look at it through the strategic lens of a stakeholder approach to creating value, then you enable organizations to have the core capability to drive the kind of innovation to change their business models that you're talking about. And without that change in the narrative of how we manage our businesses, how we lead our businesses, um, then we're, we're not you know, putting the kindling into the fire that needs to be there to drive that kind of innovation. And um, I, I, think, I think the three of us are very aligned, right? So, yeah. so now we can evangelize this to who isn't aligned, but we're very yeah. aligned. And, you know, the SDGs are actually seen as very worthy causes mm. rather than authentic business opportunities. 
where you can make the sort of return at the sort of risk that you want to make for your for your stakeholders, which include your employees, which include the government, the taxes, which include your shareholders. And I, this is the shift we've got to make. And in some part of the report, we spend a lot of time saying we, we have analyzed the SDGs and arrived at six big focus areas that we think if we force for good, because we're not just a research house um, or an industry platform, of course, right? We, we are individuals who believe in the idea of conscious capitalism, making conscious decisions to do your business in a certain way. We believe that. And so if, if we think that we could pick six and demonstrate that with, a, with the approach of innovation, with a multi-stakeholder engagement, um, you could get capital to flow to issues as big as affordable housing for the poorest all across the world, rich and poor nations. Uh, you could do that for education for children. You know, you, you could do it for digital participation um, and empowering the individual um, and financial inclusion and so on. And actually, uh, we should do that. We should make that difference. And so we have identified six big focus areas and we're, we're doing that now. We're working with partners to see if we can make that happen. Could you describe those? Oh, sorry. Well, looked like we're losing the sound. Yeah, happy to do that. Yeah. So the six, uh, Raj, uh, um, some of the ones just outlined now. So number one is affordable housing. Number two, uh, mass inclusion. Number three, mass education for children. Number four, the individual empowered by technology. Number five, biodiversity. And number six, a systemic change to how we price externalities. Um, and so these are the six. In each of these six, we have uh, and are looking for still more, of course, uh, stakeholders who fit the following profile. Number one, people who know the problem deeply. And I'm afraid we're overweight in the world that people know the problem, what we found. Number two, people who have the solutions. We're not actually underweight on people who know the solutions. We have lots of people who have solutions to these problems. And then our, our task is to figure out how to bring the solution and the problem together in a manner that is profitable for the risk taken. And so we, we, we decided to take each one and start to crack that. And if we do, then the third big stakeholder we want to bring is, um, is the financier to look at it and say, this is how I would finance this actually, and how we structure it, and how I would manage risk in this. And these are my conditions of engagement. Will I get this level of backing from the government? You know, will there be this level of governance provided? Will the currency be convertible? And so on. You know, there'll be a list of requirements for people to do that. And so we're working systematically through that process. I would say um, one is a little bit behind biodiversity. I'm, I, uh, I, I'm still seeking help, more help on that to identify the thing that could be a, you know, serious, a small set of scalable solutions that we could apply. But if I take the others, you know, we, for affordable housing, for example, you know, we began in the slums, to understand people were there in, in a particular country. We followed that through to people on streets, then the financial institutions that fund mortgages, then the government uh, that regulates, then the part of the government that gives a subsidy, and then the, the builders uh, of, of the houses and so on, to understand how, how this problem arises and why it seems that every time you take one person out of a slum in certain countries, two more take their place and the slum keeps expanding. What, what is going on? Why is that? Why is the system doing this? And how do you break that system? And I think we have some great ideas to do that now. We'd like to execute. Um, some of these we're ready for execution in the next few months now. 
So that that's um, that's the next part of the adventure. I'm sorry, before you get to the next question, Timothy, I just wanted a clarification on one of them. So mass inclusion. Uh, what mass do you mean financial inclusion. Yes. So uh, of the six that you mentioned, uh, the one that I'd love you to explain a little more is mass inclusion. I think I know what that means, but if you could define that. For yeah, me. sorry, I should have been more precise. That is mass financial inclusion. So um, you know, nearly two thirds of the world are not included uh, or inadequately included in the financial system of the world. And you know, that itself is astonishing, right? Here we are generating $450 trillion worth of capital, right, in the world, and $100 trillion every year, right, it seems now, and growing, right? And even in the toughest times, we grow this, but nearly two-thirds of the world are not participants in this great system that's delivered this much, you know? And it is easier to fund someone going to Mars, right, than it is to solve getting the, all those people onto, onto the financial system. Can't be. I mean, we just cannot let that be. The, the the mark of who we are at this stage in our development as a species. So we would love to tackle that. We have some great ideas because there is so much fintech out there. There are so many solutions that have been innovated in so many countries. And some of the most innovative countries are the poorer countries, actually, because, you know, they can't build enough branches and train enough, you know, bankers and, you know, cashiers and so on. Right? They can't do it. So they have to innovate. And so... We've been collecting that innovation to see if we could look through and figure out what is the suite that you would launch that would make a huge difference and do it profitably. I love it. I love it. Now, when I look at those six, there's one that jumps off the page to me that maybe, and I'll, I'll ask you this, to me, it seems first among equals. And that first among equals here is the pricing of externalities, that if tomorrow we could properly price the externalities and have that show up on your balance sheet and be figured into your profit and loss statements, we would suddenly see a very, very different business set of decisions being made. And I'm curious if you see it that way as well, if not, what's different and or what comes next? How do we, we how do we continue to push that? <laughs> we completely see it that way. So you know, I, I, I'm also an investor and we invest for impact and profit for our investors that include, you know, sovereigns and private wealth and institutions and um, have a big responsibility to make sure that we do that well. And so as an institution, uh, all of our people are trained in our mission to make an impact and do it profitably. They're trained on the themes that we understand and want to invest in. They're trained to go and find the deals that we want to do. Uh, they're trying to evaluate them against the normal profit measures. Will we make money if we do this deal or this investment? And also, will, will we make an impact? And how will we quantify that impact? And how will we increase that impact? And so on and so on and so on. It's very important. But, you know, e even, even though we do all of that, we're getting something for free. And we're getting, we're getting the, the global commons, you know, the natural resources uh, of the world for free. So, we as an organization don't want them to, to, to be free or regarded as free. So we are using measures to see, are we, what are we doing with the, with the footprint of the organization? Is it a clean footprint? Um, what are we doing with energy use? Are we decreasing that or transferring it to greener use? What are we doing with diversity? Are we, are we employing more women, more, more people who are poor? Um, are we managed to change that in some way. Uh, are we reaching people that, that aren't participants in the system and doing it profitably and so on? So we're, we're putting all those metrics on ourselves to do. Um, but, you know, if you don't do that, you get a free ride, right? 
because you can pollute the world and no one will penalize you unless you trip up some metric that the government cares about. And, and so it's a free ride. And so what we've, what we've said is we will work with the people that have the smartest metrics and are building databases of understanding the impact of activity on everything that moves, right? And the world itself and see if we can measure the, the environmental social impact of, of activity. And so um, th there are think tanks, ac academics, and others that are doing some of this work, and we're, we're reaching out to them, gather that information, and see if we come up with a pro forma uh, set of accounts effectively, or accounting standard effectively, that says this is how you would do it. Now, lots of people are working out this, and I can't imagine that whatever we come up with will be the perfect solution. I think it's the right answer to move in that direction. Well, I think the other wing of the bird on that one, from the point of view, I think, of a conscious capitalism is you point out that I think um, the top 2,000 companies in the world control basically 50% of the GDP. So I looked and did a quick calculation and I sort of said, if you believe there's a tipping point that occurs around 20%, then what we're talking about is getting 400 of these businesses, four to 500 of these businesses to be thinking more along the lines or moving in the direction in which you described and which Raj and I would describe is the more profitable and better way of running a business. And I mean, if, can you imagine my, my, my team go out and what are they going to look for? You know, they've got to look for businesses that are going to outperform while doing good. And they've got to help them figure out how they do more and more good and measure it. And as a result, they're going to acquire more customers more profitably. My team are going to be smarter. The businesses we miss are going to be smarter yeah. and more resilient to yeah. the shocks of the world. Yeah. It's, it's a good deal. It's a really it's good a deal. deal. It's a really good deal. And the, the optimistic part of me says, okay, 200, 400 businesses, and let's say they have 10 board members. Then what we're really talking about is can we get to this group of anywhere from four to 5,000 business people and change the narrative that they're bringing to the board. So they're asking these questions. So they're choosing CEOs who are moving in this direction and demanding that there be a strategic direction that's going to allow this firm to thrive over the next five to 10 years by moving in this direction. And so what first seems to me sometimes like a humongous problem, if I come down to sort of say, if we can influence three to 4,000 of those people, and maybe even about half that number, because once you've got three or four board members that are pounding on a point, the rest of the board tends to, to, to move along with it in some way. If we can get that 1,500 to 2,000 executives to sit down and listen to you and have Raj and I talk about conscious capitalism, somewhere between us, we could, we could influence them to a different model of how to run their businesses or ask a different set of questions. I, I would Is that just naive on my part? Or? No, no, solicit. <laughs> I would say, you know, we're here to help. Solicit Paul Pullman, though, because Paul Pullman, I mean, I, I first heard Paul speak at an event when he was about how he'd given a mission to every product line, an SDG mission. So, you know, you're selling soap. The mission isn't just to sell more soap. The mission is to make sure everyone everyone gets to be clean and have hygiene, right? That's, that's a big mission. 
So now that makes you think differently. You're not now just saying, how many bars of soap can I sell? And who's selling more soap than me? And what am I going to do about it? That question you ask anyway, but you say, hold on, the mission is to, is to introduce hygiene into, into places that don't have it. Now you've got to think innovatively and you feel rewarded by that. And your organization's value increases as a result of, of that broader innovation level that you have to adopt. It's a win-win. I think um, Paul is fantastic at telling that story and why it's so important because he's done it, you know, in a, in a large, old-fashioned institution. You know, he's, he's seen that shift, that transformation. And the board made the decision to hire a CEO who was going to continue on that app. They didn't pick a different direction. They didn't come in with. Um, but having said that, I mean, Raj and I have struggled with this for years in that, um, you know, in the firms of endearment, Raj has some data, six, seven times performance better for these companies. You have the data, six times better returns. And yet the narrative of business the narrative is still stuck, as you say, back in that industrial age model. And people are still thinking that there's this trade-off between purpose and, and profit. And, and even Mike Bloomberg this morning's Bloomberg, you know, wrote a, a big editorial saying this anti-ESG is not good for business. No, it's um, not because, you know, without it, with, I mean, this label is something people can attack, but essentially what is it? It's me diligencing the business I might invest in, right? And saying, is it damaging the environment? Because if it is at some point, we're going to have to pay for that. We probably will have to pay for that because we'd be fine. Our communities will be destroyed. I mean, that's not a good deal, right? So, so that's part of the diligence. And then it's saying, are we treating people well? You know, it's the S. Are we treating people well in the broader community? Because if we're not, they're going to protest soon. So they're going to stop us. Are we treating our employees well? And so on. You know, all the stakeholders in the S. And then, of course, you know, is the governance good? Because governance isn't good. There's going to be corruption. I'm going to lose money, and there's going to be, you know, some siphoning out of the value. So, I mean, these these are just about good business values for me. I mean, that's the way I, I see good businesses doing that. Uh, you can attack the label, but it's just good business practice to understand these things. So, and you know that. And so, you know, but but I, I want to say something else, which I think is quite important, which is we we need to have a level of compassion and then a level of safety net for the fact that you know the greatest civilization ever in human history was built off fossil fuels and there was uh, and it was the greatest innovation period ever in human history and it's taken more people out of poverty and this is one of the best times ever to be alive ever in history and it was because of fossil fuels and because of the companies that that, that actually you know plowed the earth to get this fossil fuel out and create the global supply chains to deliver it everywhere that they possibly could. Uh, and, you know, it, that was our history. That history has a price which turns out to be so heavy, it's an existential risk. But you can't blame necessarily, right, them or the employees of those businesses or the, the, the pension managers who are the fund allocators saying you, you're not to cut the cutters off. We have to figure out a fully integrated transition model where we take everybody with us. And if we don't, you know, it is no surprise that populist politics will actually prevail and we will damage the chances of a smooth transition and survival and increases the chance of conflict um, and violence in the transition. So, you know, it's important that we, we have a whole answer to this. And so I, I would love to see the SDGs 
um, also focused very much on, on rich countries in some ways, saying in these rich countries, what is the actual assessment of the people that need to be transitioned? And what, what are we going to do to make that happen? Mm-hmm. It's quite it's insight. Important. An, an important insight. And and I think the last part that, that I want to just bring up is that you also talk about the role of individuals. So we have a lot of people listening to the podcast today. And the, the question comes back to what is the role of the individual? Because we don't want to have to all leave this all to the board and to major system change. But we do bring it back to the individual. And you do have some comments in your report about the role of the individual. Do you want to maybe end on that note? This is so important. And it's personally, I find this is one of the most important and motivating parts of looking at this problem and figuring out what the answer is. So, you know, we're often saying the problem is this corporation. But what is that corporation? Or, or is this government? Or is this industry? Well, what, what are all those things? They're just people. They're just individuals. And perhaps an individual with the title CEO and have an individual with the title prime minister or president or something else, but they're all individuals. And as and I think if we somehow we return to our humanity as individuals, regardless of the formal role that we might play, uh, and we take stock, we know the individual has to be a powerful player because the individual has nearly two-thirds of the world's money as, as an owner and gets to, to dictate the terms of using that money. We also know the individual is, is somebody who can make a, a vote as a citizen. So they have a, in many countries, they have a vote. And we know this individual has a vote when they go to a supermarket to pick up a can of beans and say, who makes this can of beans? And if we empower them with the, the information uh, at their fingertips on, on their mobile phone, they will look and they will say, wow, they had to actually use child labor and pollute the planet to give me this can of beans. No, thanks. I'll put it down, pick up another can of beans. Let me look at this one. And you'll pick a can of beans that doesn't. You know, you don't have to abuse the planet or people to give me my beans. <laughs> so I say beans because I'm British, right? And, you know, British, we, we love beans. The Indian part of me would put masala in the beans, right? But, you know, you've got to better put it down and, dis- and make a different choice. So we're the most powerful agent as consumers, as voters, and so that empowerment really matters. And one of the things we have done as Force for Good is we've commissioned the launch of a social media uh, platform called I Love This Planet. It's gone live with um, beginning with just friends and family. Um, uh, and the social media platform, we wanted to fill a gap. You know, if, if you want to say something about somebody, you might go to Twitter. If you want to show somebody your lifestyle, you might go to Facebook. If you want to put up a video on almost anything on the planet, you might go to YouTube and do that. Uh, But where do you go when you want to do good and talk about the good that you want to do and find other people that do good and share those and collaborate and, you know, make sure those ideas are flowing. So we've, we've launched the first, if you like, level of the platform. And over time, we want to add to that the, the financing that allows you to fund your projects. The data analytics allows, us, allows you to see what impact you're having, give you the information that you need to make what you know different choices, so on. So uh, it's called it's called I love this planet. Uh, it's at I love this planet.com and it allows you to to take a look and participate with others on doing good. That's the idea. Beautiful. I love this planet.com. Um, go and see it now. Raj, any any other thoughts on your side? 
No, I just wanted to ask Ketan if you're heading to the uh, UN uh, in a week. I am. What's the agenda I'm there? Ready. I'm also speaking at an event with the Brazilian uh, SDG contingent. Uh, Bob Chapman is going to be there speaking on education as well. What are you uh, planning to do there and what's happening in that field? I start the week before and uh, I'm, I'm hosting a series of meetings um, and running a panel too at something called the SALT Conference in New York, where, where we're hosting, hosting a force for good panel. We'll have somebody from the UN, uh, somebody who is a chief investment officer of a very big insurer, and someone who's staying a policy officer of a very big asset manager and bank to discuss, you know, how do we become a force for good? And what are all the ways they're doing it? What are the obstacles and barriers that, that are always appearing? And, you know, what is their vision for how we make the world better? So we're doing that. But we're also meeting lots of people who, you know, this is a movement, I think, that is growing, of people who want to make the world better. And so, you know, I have a packed agenda of, you know, of just meeting people who want to do good to see if we can collaborate and make it happen together. Hopefully we can meet in New York while we're there. I hope to see you. And for those that don't know, the SALT conference is one of the world's biggest hedge fund get-togethers, if I'm not correct. And Big financial institutions uh, and um, uh, also, also showcases uh, things to do with geopolitics, with social causes, and so on, too. And um, it's is a meeting of lots of financial institutions from all over the world. Oh, interesting place okay. to, to, to hear interesting thoughts about the future of, of finance. Ketan, thank you for taking us through a journey of what the planet needs now and bringing it all the way down to what the individual can do on ilovethisplanet.com. It's been a privilege and really a fascinating discussion today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, oh no, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. Thank, thank you, you Kevin. Thank you for the work you're doing and thank you for being with us. Oh, too kind. Take care. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us and whatever channel you're listening on today. Please feel free to hit the subscribe button. And if you really feel so moved, go on over to iTunes and Apple and leave us uh, a rating and give us your comments. We're always um, enjoying reading those things and hearing your feedback. And a big thank you to Tech Sounds, our producers for this, and Raj. And thank you also to Technological Monterey and the Conscious Enterprise Center for hosting this and for furthering this work. All right. Be well, and we'll see you all next week.